it was still the 80s. Tattooing at the time, at least in that town, was um, feast or famine. Nobody worked by appointment. The person that I worked with wound up shooting a um, co-worker. I was there, I think, till like 1988. I met my friend and mentor, Paul Rogers. The fact that I survived that, I'm stronger for it. My name is Steph Bastian. In my 10 years on the road, I've met many unique characters in the tattoo business, and they all have one thing in common, incredible stories. Stories of past times, personal growth, priceless experience, and of course, bizarre happenings. I want to share those stories with you. This is Tattoo Tales. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah thank you for uh, for joining. And uh, what is that beautiful painting behind you? Oh, um, this used to be my baby's room, and it was uh, his nursery. How old are your kids now? Uh, my youngest is 19. He still lives here. So 19, 21, 26... 28 and um, 40. One of them is tattooing, right? Four of them tattoo. Ah, four of them. Okay. How is that going? Good. My one son, uh, my oldest son has been tattooing, oh gosh, over 14, I think 14 years this year. Okay. He, uh, everybody's in the same state with me, but he has his own shop in Fairbanks, which mm. is Northern city about five hours away from me. He has a shop with uh, two other uh, guys. And then one of my sons, the 26-year-old, works about an hour away from me, tattooing. And then one son works with us at our shop. And then my daughter, who's 21, she just started um, this year. So It's nice that you can all share the same, the same passion, yeah. huh? Oh, a lot of stuff to talk about over dinner, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a few years ago, I thought, oh, that's so strange. All my children are, like, heavily tattooed or, or starting, you know, a couple of them are, few of them are. But even my daughter is now um, getting tattooed. And my youngest son, my husband, did his chest panel and his uh, start of his sleeve. And, you know, when I tell people that are a family of tattooers, because there's six of us tattooing now, you know, with my husband and the four children, they look at us like we're um, circus performers. <laughs> Freaks, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how's your well, husband? I met him years ago in Denmark. He doesn't like uh He's not comfortable doing videos. I actually, I went out to him. I said, can you help me with this, you know, to figure out how to Skype? And he didn't know. He says, oh, you do it. That's your thing. Not mine. <laughs> but I was saying my children, um, you know, for a while I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, they all want to get into tattooing and they all want to be heavily tattooed. And for a while I was a little hesitant, but then... Um, 
I thought that is a really, um, that's quite a compliment, I think, that they all want to follow in our footsteps and um, emulate what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's one more thing in common to share you know, as a family, which is a, it's a beautiful thing, you know. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And there's and, not too many family tattoo family. There's not that many family businesses, let alone family tattoo businesses. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, because often, you know, the second generation then has other interests, you know. So unless you have that type of uh, future in mind, but then often it's something else, you know. Right. And how long have you been tattooing? 41 years. Wow. Yeah, 41 years. Was it your father the first tattoo that you ever saw in your life that you have memory of? My dad, yeah. Yeah? What he was had, it? He got it in Coney Island in New York. And that's, um, you know, a beach town uh, amusement park and uh, a boardwalk where they have tattooers, a lot of tattooers. He had a uh, skull with a snake you know, going in the eye and <clears throat> wrapped around. And then my dad's name is Tommy, was Tommy. And my mother's name is Gay, G-A-Y. So for years, he had Gay Tommy on his arm. When they first got together and started dating in the 50s, Gay just meant happy. And he never got the end thinking that if they ever broke up, because he got it probably when he was 17 or 18. He figured in case they broke up, he would just have, you know, gay Tommy on his arm. And then they were married the rest of his life, you know. And, and when I started <laughs> tattooing, I, I would say, oh, daddy, you know, let me put um, an end in between. But he didn't care. Yeah, eventually you get used to that. Yeah. And do you remember how you felt about that tattoo, like when you were a kid? You know, he liked it. You know, he likes the tattoo. You know, I don't, I don't remember. I just, it's, it's always been in my memory, yeah. you know, that he had the tattoo. And then his brother, my uncle, had a, um, a pinup girl of some sort on his arm. And uh, I posted it on my Instagram somewhere. He had a pinup on his uh, arm. And my grandmother made him uh, put a bathing suit top on her because she was naked. And, uh, you know, he could make her dance. I like that. But uh, other than that, when I was a teenager, I really, I didn't have many friends who had tattoos, just a few. And it was the 70s. And I remember my dad's tattoos and my uncle's tattoos were reminiscent of the time. You know, very, they were thick and kind of green and looked very faded. So when I started seeing tattoos that were artistically different and beautiful in the 70s, I remember, I remember the first tattoo I saw that I w thought was beautiful. And um, it was two long stem roses and uh, was on a girl I knew. And I actually remember it. I was in a um, clothing store and she was trying on clothes and it was on her back and I remember oh being so impressed with it and it was before I started tattooing about a okay. year before and yeah. did you ask her I bet you must have asked her, like what is that where did you get it huh yes and uh, I remember uh and I had never met the artist now we lived in Brooklyn which is in New York um but this tattooer his name was he's gone now but his name was Len Weber and he worked in New Jersey. I think near the where um, 
Mike Schweigert and Robert Ryan and uh, I think towards maybe the town where they work or, you know, towards there. And uh, I remember just loving his work, but people would travel to from New York to New Jersey to be able to get tattooed. Yeah, I loved it. Did you start tattooing in New York then or? What happened was I met somebody from New Jersey and tattooing, as I said, was illegal. So uh, the only people were working underground. So like DeVita, Tom DeVita and um, Tony Polito, who was in Brooklyn for years. So I met this person who was a tattooer and he had just come uh, from the West Coast. I was hoping to be an artist. I've drawn my whole life. And... uh, You know, I didn't know where I was going with it, but I had hoped that I could use it somehow to make a living. And I was 19. And so the person I met um, was the first person I met that was heavily tattooed. And I had never seen anybody in person that was, um, you know, like it didn't have a bodysuit, but close, you know, had sleeves. Yeah, lots of tattoos. Yeah. Heavily covered. Yeah. Yeah, and he was a, a, you know, a biker. So anyway, he was a tattooer, and he said, uh, you know, with my artwork, that he suggested he would teach me how to tattoo. So. And that's how he started? Yes. Well, I didn't know any tattooers other than this person. I had never been in a tattoo shop, and I didn't have any tattoos. We went to the west coast of, uh, we were heading towards the west coast. We went on a road trip and we wound up in um, Arizona. In the meantime, he was telling me, you know, sharing the fundamentals of tattooing. And um, he had a van, a big van that was set up to do tattoos out of. And we wound up in uh, Arizona. And that's where I did my first tattoo, having no knowledge of it. I had no training. <laughs> Just go ahead. And, um, and it you know, came out all right that I remember. But I did my first tattoo before I ever saw somebody doing a tattoo. Wow. So, yeah. So that must have been scary as hell, huh? It was scary, you know, but I was 19. So, you know, when you're a teenager or young, you don't really... You don't care. Yeah, it's like, here, climb that mountain. Okay, you know, you know, let's go to this horrible, you know, dangerous place. Oh, sure. You know, so here, do your first tattoo. And the man that I did the tattoo on, he didn't speak English. He spoke Spanish, and I didn't speak Spanish. But um, he got a name on his hand. And I don't remember what the name was, even. I, I must have been nervous, because... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't remember what it was, but like I said, I was 19 and I was, you know, probably a silly girl, not threatening. And so the guy felt fine and I probably charged five dollars and it was an outdoor flea market. So he would travel from place to place with the van and, and stop in places or? Well, this was the first place and the only place. So this was the place that we worked and uh, I did my first tattoos, which weren't good, you know? So, I mean, whose are? The only thing that saved me was that I could draw well. So, um, 
at the time, uh, I think I probably drew it on his hand and pen before I did it. So it looked okay. And then technically, who knows, you know, if it ever healed even. <laughs> it's the first, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And where did you go from there? From there, we went back to the East Coast, uh, to New York, upstate New York. And now in upstate New York, out of the city, it was legal. So I went first. So this is only six months after I um, said, okay, now I'm going to become a tattooer. There was a little shop in a town that had had a tattooer. It was in a college town. And the shop was set up in the back of a head shop. You know what a head shop is? You know, where they, oh, they sell like a rolling paper and. Uh, oh, okay. And, um, yeah, know, tobacco and stuff like that. Exactly. So yeah. they had a, a tattoo shop in the back of that. And I was tattooing all by myself there. I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> 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 I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, somehow got by and so that was uh in 1979 so i was there for a few months and i was pregnant with my first son so i was pregnant tattooing you know i didn't know what i was doing while i was there this is a true story it's so strange I was walking at a state fair. There was a person, a carnival worker. He uh, was heavily tattooed, and he would uh, do um, performances like uh, hammer, um, you know, nail. He was pierced, and this is 1979, so you didn't see that a lot. He was heavily tattooed, shirtless, and he would pound um, nails into his um, nose, and call people over to the carnival games. It's called, it's like a barker. And he's the attraction that brings people over. So I was walking alone through the uh, carnival, through the state fair, and he started talking to me. And uh, he was a tattooer, and his name was Tony, Tony DiPietro. And he um, told me that he... Um, and I told him that I was a tattooer in town, but I really wasn't a tattooer, but I, you know, that I was trying. And he told me that um, he had a winter home in uh, Florida where, um, uh, in Daytona Beach, where they have the um, races, they have motorcycle races every yep. year. They have a, a, a meet in April, I think, motorcycle and bikers come from all over the world so he invited me to go work there during bike week i had the opportunity i moved then to new jersey that just uh to have my baby uh then went to daytona to work with tony and while i was there i uh was working with you know other tattoo artists that knew what they were doing <laughs> Was it the and, first time that you were uh, meeting other tattooers, yeah? Yes. So, yeah, the very first time. Yeah, absolutely. So I met a friend who is still a good friend of mine, Eric Inksmith of yep. Inksmith and Rogers. So I met him and his former wife there. Her name's Miss Sophia and um, other tattooers. I was working and I really 
I don't know how I was getting by, but I was. But I think I had a problem with uh, one of my machines and had absolutely no idea what to do. And um, Eric and other people there helped me. And um, uh, and I made so uh, those friendships. I made my the, uh, the relationship with Eric and his ex, and we became friends. And they helped me um, through that time. And then I went back to, you know, because that was only um, for Bike Week. And, but we stayed in touch. And then I think we stayed in touch then. But then um, I went back east and I set up in New Jersey. And I opened a shop there, still not knowing what to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because I... Uh, now that I look back, you know, I had, we got the shop. And at the time, you couldn't find places that would let you open up a shop. So you had to go, you know, from town to town, city to city, if you, you know, so you'd find the building and then you'd wind up going. And they wouldn't give you um, a Please. license or a lease if they knew what, you know, if you were a tattooer. It was very difficult, but I found a town that would let me uh, open a shop and it opened a shop. And I was very naive. I thought like I was going to reinvent tattooing, like all of the flash that I had. I thought, oh, I'm going to redraw all of the flash, you know, in my style. And, and I, you know, again, I didn't really know what I was doing. So the shop failed. <laughs> I mean, it was still only like within two years of my starting to tattoo. And then I wound up working out of my house for a couple of years and uh, honing my skills. And when would you say that you kind of started, you know, because the first stage is you don't know that you don't know. You think you do, but you don't. Right. Then the second stage is, you know that you don't know, right? So when did that happen for you when you started kind of like glimpsing me like, ah, this is what tattooing is. And then you started like finding the, the channel for information or at least a guidance. I would say it was at least four years into tattooing um, because the person that uh, taught me how to tattoo, he knew how to tattoo, but he, um, he had taught me more so that he didn't have to work. He taught me so that I could be the breadwinner. And yeah. uh, and I was artistically talented, I like to think. And that is really what saved me. I tell everybody that is what saved me and during tattoos. Because not only was I insecure and not confident, but um, when I first started tattooing is with um, acetate stencils, you know, yep. and, and you work with them. And it's very, very um, unforgiving. And, uh, you know, when you put a stent a acetate stencil on, it can rub off very easily. So a lot of times I would say, oh, let me draw this custom rose for you. You know, let me draw something for you that is, you know, it's only yours. Nobody else will have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to sell it, huh? Yeah, so that way um, it wouldn't wash off. Plus, if it was my own drawing, and I even remember what I used to say to people because I'd be going along and if they were watching and I you know, went somewhere else, 
you know, I'd say, oh, don't pay any attention, you know, I, because I drew it, I see where, uh, you know, it flows better this way. And, you know, I had this whole speech because I really didn't know what I was doing. So I kind of developed a lot of bad habits, but a lot of habits that also helped me find my way, you know, to be um, my artistically anyway. I still was on my own for the first few years. Um, you know, didn't know other tattooers really, didn't spend any time with them. I had never gone to a convention yet. I moved to Florida full time. I moved to Daytona full time and met a few other tattooers that lived there also full time. And so then I started working with uh, other artists. And so then you had like a, a process of learning and watching and exchanging some sort of reference, huh? Yes. You know, and that's a motorcycle town. So it's it was very different. You know, it was very different being a, a woman tattooing there. Again, I had never met any other than uh, Eric's wife, former wife. She, you know, she was the only woman I had met tattooing. I worked with mainly men, and um, and in Daytona, that wasn't always a good thing. <laughs> you know, a lot of, of outlaw bikers and um, colorful uh, people. Yes, but you're not always tolerant of women. <laughs> yeah, I guess it must have been tough. But on the other hand, you somehow you must have matured uh, a thick skin, you know, and and a sort of uh, that that's what made you who you are, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it really helped me because people were, were very uh, open about their uh, opinions. Um, they they would say some awful, th I mean, I can remember somebody coming in wanting to get tattooed at the shop that I was working at. And um, somebody, you know, whoever we have, we used to have people, you know, floor people that or they would hustle tattoos and get people to come into the shop. And I remember this biker coming in, um, wanting to get tattooed. And somebody said, oh, Deborah can do it. And he said, oh, never let a boss tattoo me. And, yeah. I, and I just looked at him and said, okay, well, you know, Joe can do it or whatever. You know, that's how they were. I mean, I wasn't going to sit there and have an argument with him. You know, yeah, of I, course. it was rough, actually, there. Or people would, you know, talk about your body, you know, while yeah. you're tattooing. <laughs> How yeah, long did you work there for? Four years. Okay. You know, at the time, you really, it was still the 80s. Tattooing at the time, at least in that town, was um, feast or famine. Nobody worked by appointment. It was all, uh, for the most part, it was all um, street shop, walk-in business. I also, at the time was raising my son, who was a baby, or a little boy, going to college, and managing a tattoo shop and working there, and working from midnight to eight in the morning as a waitress. Wow. Yeah, so it was a lot was of rough. Money. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was terrible. I didn't enjoy working in Florida at all. But there was good things about Florida because I was there, I think, till like 1988. And that's there. I, I did meet a lot of um, other people. I started traveling, 
you know, going to conventions. I met my friend and mentor, Paul Rogers, who uh, lived only a couple of hours away from there. So that's when I started meeting other tattooers, expanding from going from knowing nothing, you know, and being mainly self-taught to um, learning you know, about tattoo history and um, machine, you know, how to do things more the right way, yes. technically. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, how do you, did your friendship with Paul Rogers evolved? Well, I first met Eric Inksmith, who, when I first met him, he was in a different state. He hadn't started working with Paul yet. And um, then the next time I, I worked with uh, Eric again, um and uh in a different shop for bike week so it was through another tattooer i met paul then we our friendship went as it evolved i started going to visit him on a regular basis and helping him in his uh machine shop at that time he was getting ready to donate he had retired already from tattooing but he was still uh uh very involved in machine building and having visitors come from all over the world. But he had a lot of um, memorabilia and equipment and paraphernalia uh, that he was deciding at that time where it was going to go after he died. So I was helping him organize everything and um, get things together, helping him and also helping him work in the workshop. Anybody that visited Paul would wind up in his workshop helping him. You know, yeah, he was very nice. generous that way. Mm-hmm. What What would it be? Because you you had the uh, you know the chance to meet him uh, more you know closely as a friend uh, for mm-hmm. a longer period of time. What would you say that, in your opinion, is this trait you remember the most as a person? What What did he leave you as a person? Well, um, anybody, if you ask anybody, anybody about Paul, I don't think there's one person that has an unkind word to say about him. He was extremely generous. And when I say that, I don't mean um, material, but of his his time and his spirit and uh, anything, his, his history. He loved tattooing. So he wanted to share that with anybody that loved tattooing. And he didn't care about your skill level or... Um, or your status, you know, he, anybody that came to visit him, uh, he would, uh, uh, he loved to sit and in the workshop. He was a really simple man. He wasn't educated, you know, uh, academically. He was not, he didn't go far in school, but he was very wise. And uh, he was very, very kind spirit and loved tattooing. And he loved to correspond. He wrote to people all over the world. And he really loved to share his knowledge of tattooing. But I joke, I tell everybody, I am not mechanically inclined at all. I mean, you saw how long it took us to get uh, a <laughs> 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 like sitting here with my phone. So Paul was so patient because... And, you know, the other day I had a um, somebody uh, contact me and ask, you know, she's uh, was interested in female tattoo machine builders. And do I know of any? 
And then she said something. She wrote something, you know, Deborah learned from Paul. And I'm like, oh, don't say that. Because if I say I'm probably the least worthy recipient of his um, knowledge to pass on. Because I even have to look at my notes just to see, uh, you know, to remember, you know, how, oh, how do you do that? And how do you do that? A few years ago, um, I was watching um, one of the TV shows about tattooing and uh, somebody had to put together tattoo, take apart and put together their tattoo machine, all the people on the show. And I thought, you know, I don't even know if I know how to do that anymore because it's been, it has been at least 35 years since I worked on machines, you know, and, and built a machine and put one, to, you know, if I had to. So yeah. I said, gosh, I don't know how, if I had to, could I? And I could. And, you know, I was able to, thankfully. <laughs> and it, it came back to me. But I don't, you know, I if, fortunately, most things, nothing goes wrong with my machines. And um, if they do, Don, Don does everything. You, they, you got, he has your back, huh? Yeah, he's my machine. He helps me. But, you know, I say I'm not a machine builder. I'm a tattooer. Some people are gifted, you know, that way. But even if I have to, like, put together a vacuum or something, I'll say to Don, I'll say to him, can you read the instructions and then just explain it to me? You know? <laughs> so it's and then, when have you guys met? Uh, ooh, 1980, um, I would say 1988, mm. 80, 87 or 88. Yeah, so I had, after I left, Florida I had gone to um, I got a job I was at a convention with Paul I was at a convention with Paul and uh, Inksmith Eric Inksmith and we were in uh, California then they only had the national convention you know national tattoo yep. association yep. so once a year so we went to convention I think it was in San Diego and I met uh, my future boss and uh, he was a character. Uh, his name was Fast Freddy. He was like, a, he wasn't a carnival person, but he had that personality, you know, yeah. like big, you know, uh, like he'd take out a whole roll of money whenever he had to pay for something. And he was kind of flashy and uh, loud. And yeah, yeah, loud, flashy. So he hired me. His shop was outside of a military base. An army base. So one of the largest, I think it's the largest army infantry training training uh, uh, base in the world, maybe, Fort Benning, Georgia. So um, I went there and I was working uh, at his shop. That's where I met Don. Because so, he was a ranger, right? Yes, he was a ranger, uh, special forces. And then uh, when, he, when I met him, he was a ranger instructor. So okay. he was... Teaching other rangers, you know, and he came in to get tattooed and um, we were just friends and he wound up working at that shop. He wanted to, you know, start tattooing. So we wound up working together. That's how we met. Nice. And the magic happened. Yeah. Well, no, actually, it's kind of a, I told, you know, I can't talk about, um, my meeting him without talking about what happened you know my 
the person that taught me also or introduced me to tattooing also worked there. So we all worked together and and um, it was, you know, a crazy time and there, we were a super busy shop. But the person that I worked with wound up shooting a um, co-worker and that's what ended our <laughs> Ended our relationship. Yeah, yeah. shot five times. Jesus. So, in the shop. Wow. While we, you know, on a work day. So, what was it? Just a, just a, was it a long time beef or just an argument or? You know, uh, I can't speak for the person, but from what I remember, uh, you know, I worked in a shop with all men. So it's the only woman. And uh, at the time, you know, it was a different world. You know, there were women would come into the shop and want to trade for tattoos. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, They'd want to trade for tattoos. And and I think there was a lot of um, hostility between these two the two people I don't know what it was they just didn't get along and my boss he liked um he liked to stir up um problems between the workers you know and uh we were having a shop meeting and so um they got into an argument and and he shot him so wow and so that ended um, that relationship. And uh, also I lost my job at that shop, even though I didn't do anything. You know, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't shoot the guy. Did the shop close? No, no. Not we even. went to work that day. Wow. We all had to go, yeah, we all had to go to the police station and talk, you know, and give our testimony statement what have you the guy that got shot he um was a tattooer and he went to the hospital and the other one you know took off and then we came back and we had to work it was a really busy weekend it was a payday weekend did he survive did the guy survive yeah, yeah. and that was wow. a, you know, a military payday weekend sometimes you'll make all of your money for the month that day yeah. You know, and this was in the in um, uh, 1991, and um, you know, at that point, you know, you could make your mortgage payment or your rent on that military, you know, on that payday. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, you couldn't not work. So. Yeah. And where did you so, go from there? Well, I still stayed there for a couple of years after that and uh, wound up marrying Don, who was my best friend at the time. And uh, I went to another shop in town and Don went to another shop, a different shop. And so we worked there and Don was still in the military then, but he was able to work, you know, his job in the military and then work at um, tattoo shops. At, in the night, at the night and on the weekend, you know, or whenever he wasn't working. And they were happy to have him there because, you know, then the soldiers felt comfortable going in there. He was already a sergeant, you know, so they knew they weren't going to get ripped off and they felt comfortable. And, um, you know, because a lot of the places took advantage of 
yeah. soldier, you know. So we worked there together uh, for another few years. And then we stayed all mainly in the south, um, south of the United States for years. You've been traveling a little bit around, huh? All right. So there's eight of us, myself, Don, and we have six children. We're each born in a different state in the United States, so nobody in the same city or state. And um, uh, so I'm from New York, Don's from Ohio, my oldest son is from New Jersey, and then Don and I went on to have five children together. And uh, one was born in um, Georgia, one in Tennessee, one in Kentucky, one in Louisiana, and then one in Alaska. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We had, uh, we moved around a lot. Usually we were someplace for like three or four years, you know, because he was in the military. And um, what would you say that, you know, uh, have been some of the moments that, you know, might have been most challenging for you, but at the same time, gave you the strength that you got today you know something that made that built you into what you are today because i believe that those are the ones that you know form you well i think if you you know if i'm pretty transparent and i'm pretty honest about things on uh on social media i do speak about it a lot and um I know some people question why I do it, but it helps me, and I found it has helped a lot of people. My uh, life before I got married to Don, I considered a tough childhood. Uh, you know the expression, out of the, out of the frying pan and into the fire? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard that? Well, mm-hmm. when I left home, I had been pretty wild and just got into just you know, made some really crazy decisions, you know, I was very naive, you know, even my decision to go off with the tattooer I met, you know, and didn't really know, um, and then travel across the country with him. It So for 12 years before Don and I got married, I was in a very abusive relationship, physically and um, mentally abusive. And, and uh, when I say physically abusive, I mean extreme, not to be, uh, you know, to make anybody uncomfortable, but, um, you know, broken bones, hospitals, um, you know, like torture. So when I was out of that relationship, uh, first of all, I was so happy <laughs> you know, for <laughs> me. <laughs> It was the best thing ever, you know, and I often say, you know, the worst, probably the worst night of somebody else's life was the best night of mine, because the day that he shot that person, I was able to, um, you know, say, okay, I'm leaving, and that's it. Before that, I didn't feel uh, strong enough or free enough or um, without threat to be able to leave. And so when people would will say, oh, well, why did you stay for so long? You know, 12 years, why didn't you leave? Well, here he shot somebody five times who he just sort of didn't like. Where with me, you know, I was threatened, if you leave, this will happen. If you try to go, 
you know, then you'll experience worse um, uh, abuses and such. So, and, you know, fear for my son, my older son, that I, you know, something would happen to him. So to me, the fact that I survived that, I'm stronger for it. Not that I would ever really want to go through that again, but I really advocate for um, women, or I try to, that are in the same situation. So that has helped. Did you have anybody close at the time that you could at least open up with, or you were just you and that? I was just you. One of the things about when people are, uh, I think people that are like that purposely seek out somebody that is vulnerable. I was really wild and kind of rebellious and hippie-ish, and um, uh, I think that he spent the rest of the time trying to break me you know almost like you know like you get a wild horse or something and you spend, or a dog or whatever and you try to break their spirit I mean of course I had when I was in college people would report me not report me but I'd come in with you know bruises or what have you and they'd call me to the counselor and you know why to try to speak to me but I always felt like if I couldn't get out of it. And if there was nothing I could do, then sharing it with somebody else only made that much more of a burden, you know, because then you have people judging you. And um, I shared uh, just last week uh, a story. I mean, it was a pretty terrible story that I had um, really been injured and I wound up having to go to a women's shelter. And with my son, you know, where you go to a safe house and yep. you, have, you have to meet somebody uh, alone in a restaurant or wherever. And then they have to make sure nobody's following you so that you don't risk the um, life lives or, you know, the safety of the other people at this um, shelter. So I went to the shelter with my son and he was five years old or he was a baby at the time and we stayed there and I had to have, um, uh, some reconstructive surgery on, on my face and nobody in town, uh, would help me because it was a motorcycle community and I had called the police and I was like, uh, a rat or, you know, whatever you call somebody, you know, a snitch. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, but another tattooer at the time, his wife, her name is Kathy Monty, and she lives in California. She came and she um, she tattoos and or she does a lot of classes for, um, you know, CPR, bloodborne, I mean, bloodborne pathogen classes for licensing in California. So anyway, she uh, uh, came and got me and and brought me to the hospital. To, so she was the only person that supported me at the time. So, you know, people are very judgmental. At that time, the thought was still, even people will say it now, oh, well, she must like it if she stays in the relationship. You know, uh, you know, she it's her fault if she doesn't leave. And they never say, you know, they'll say, why don't you leave? Why do you put up with it? And they never say to the person doing it, why are you a violent, crazy animal? You know, why are you hurting somebody, you know, 
a weaker person, you know, why are you uh, um, a monster, you know, but instead they blame it on you. They put it on, you know, put it on you. So, um, no, I didn't share. My parents didn't know. I was isolated at the time, so I had no friends. And the only thing I had was tattooing. So my tattooing was my um, my ability to be away. I was because I was the money maker. That was my uh, salvation. I can't even imagine how it must feel, you know, in that dynamic, that sense of hopelessness because you were alone. Would you say that having your kid that helped you go through that because you have something to fight for to keep going, you know, because otherwise well, you might end up in a very bad place. You know, it's a, when people ask me, you know, one of the reasons I stayed, my son was a baby. He was still in a crib and um, the person was being very violent towards me. And I was, of course, you know, saying, I just, I want to go. I want to leave. You know, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm leaving. And the person picked my child up out of his crib while I, and I'm not ashamed to say this because it's not my, it's not my shame. I literally got on my um, knees and begged him, please don't take my son, don't take the baby. And he walked out of the house while I cried for the baby. And when a few hours later, when he came back with him, he said, that's what will happen if you will leave. You will not have your, you can't, you're not taking him away. And I certainly wouldn't leave him. And so, um, and here I am, and I used to say it, you know, he's going to grow up and he's going to remember this and he's not going to like you. And I I have a wonderful relationship with my son. He is a wonderful, all with all my children. I have have four sons and one daughter. But um, my sons all are wonderful partners. My one son just got engaged this weekend. Nice. Yeah. So, and my other son is engaged, and um, and my other son is married, and I have seven grandchildren. So, um, you're a busy woman. I am. So, but (laughs) but I have a wonderful relationship with my son, and he is. I like to say he is very much like me, and not the other person. Yeah. And uh, what would you feel like saying, you know, to somebody that might be in that bad place right now? What would you what would you tell them? You know, it's hard to say because so many people when they are going to leave, you know, people will say, oh, leave, just leave. And they wind up getting hurt while they're leaving. I mean, so many people um, get killed you know, or hurt after they leave or when they're trying to leave. So, but now I think there are so many, um, there are so many resources for people. And, um, you know, one thing I used to do when I was in the, re- in the situation was, first of all, I thought, where will I go? What will I do? You know, what about my things? What about, uh, and tattooing was a big thing. Because at the time, there were so few people tattooing that if I left, 
I'm, and let's say had to uh, go and hide, you know, and live um, uh, under an alias, you know, and tattoo, uh, he would be able to find me. So I think that I would have had to give up tattooing in order, uh, in order to do that. I think, I think though, looking back, so hard to say, I can't look in hindsight what I would have done. Now, what I would do is other than your children and your own safety, I don't think there's anything worth staying in that relationship for, but you have to be safe. There are so many resources, you know, but even still women are, women and men, you know, aren't safe. You know, you have to watch, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I don't know, is that the correct answer? Yeah, of course. You know, there's no correct answer. (laughs) There's only an answer. And, um, you know, what makes me think of is this, you know, quarantine, uh, thing that we went through here, at least in Europe, but you know, around the world is all the same. Where actually domestic violence increased because when you have that dynamic, and then you forced in an um, apartment, you know. So that's. Uh, I even but, thought of that and spoke on that. I thought if I, I can't even imagine how horrible, and especially because as that person becomes frustrated because they can't. Uh, do what they were, they are losing their freedom and then they're worried and concerned and you were there, you know, whether the weaker person, whether it's a, a spouse or child or whatever, I can't even imagine what it's like for some people. Um, I can't even imagine. I hope that, uh, you know, everybody's can reach out to somebody. Now they do have social media and phones and you know, yeah, the good thing is that now now you can speak as well a bit more freely about it, and people are more open to listen, and it's less of a taboo, so to speak. You know, even yeah. if the dynamics are difficult sometimes, but you know, yeah. it's something that it's it's more out there as well. People are coming oh. out, and you, and you see even recently with some recent events, you know, people are not afraid to come out and talk about it, which is which is a good thing, I guess, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I've been in therapy. <laughs> I'm very open about it. Uh, I've been in therapy now for 17 years, I think, because, uh, it, you know, the trauma from something like that is very real, you know. So, And I would like to, you know, have a happy, you know, free li- life from that, you know, because you don't want to spend whatever years living it and then have to relive it all the time, you know, in your, in your thoughts and your choices. So I'm doing really well, you know, but it's, I've been away from that for almost 30 years and it's still just like it was yesterday, unfortunately, you know. And what would you say is the, if you could think about like the best advice you ever received or the best lesson you ever learned that, that, you know, keeps coming uh, back or being useful to you still today. You know, something that really stuck in with you and, and you find very positive. In, re- in, in general, in general, can be can be that can be tattoo, it can be life, whatever. Something that you know you find useful. You no, know, my dad was my dad was um, a former alcoholic. Well, he was an alcoholic. He stopped drinking when he was in his thirties, so I was very young. 
but he stayed very active in a group of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was raised going to um, meetings, you know, for families and such. And when my dad and I would be out and a panhandler would be in the street, you know, somebody begging for money. My dad, um, I can remember asking why he would give them money. You know, I mean change, you know, uh, just small amount of money. And he would say, um, there's a saying, there but for the grace of God go I. And just saying that you could be in that position, you know, that could be you. You know, so he was very charitable and um, would help that person. So, yeah, there but for the grace of God go I. So I, I always say that. I always try to put myself in somebody else's position and try to understand what they're going through. So that's what I, I like to do. Yeah, I find that, you know, empathy, that empathic attitude, one of the things that are helpful the most in all contexts. Even even in the shop, you're talking to a customer, whatever, is nervous, you know, then when you make the effort to go over your own ego or worries or whatever, you know, or expectations, and then you try to walk one mile in that person's shoe, you're like, oh, wait a second, maybe he or she is just scared or worried or, you know, and then and then that barrier comes out or we can communicate better, you know, it definitely is very, very powerful, yeah. That has helped me all through my tattooing career. You know, now that I'm older, you know, I'm at the end of, I'd say the end of my career, you know, I mean, my the end of it is way closer than, uh, the beginning you know so uh i mean that's not happening so yeah so i'm probably in the last few years of my career so i say you know there are so many great tattooers out there now i know people don't come to me because i'm a great tattooer and you know not to um surprise the people that get tattooed by me but yeah i'm not there are better tattooers than me and uh, a lot better. And uh, but people get tattooed by me because they feel comfortable, or because we have um, meshed somehow, and uh, or because uh, because of my empathy. Um, I just you know we all do so many tattoos that are meaningful to people because they've lost somebody or or what they've gone through in their life and I um you know I can I feel like I can understand and I think they know that so um so I think that's what keeps them coming back yeah yeah you know tattooing is not just not just a pretty picture you know and and it I, I keep talking about this often with friends and especially because it's important that the new way tattooing is built today doesn't lose that which you could you might call magic or whatever but you know tattooing is more than a pretty picture so you would not want a very very well executed or beautiful tattoo done by an asshole you know because you're going to look at that and you're going to have that connection and be like oh that was such a bad experience what what is it right. worth the the beauty of the picture you know so sometimes it's not just that because i have other friends of mine that say the same that you say but you know getting tattooed by them is an experience you know mm -hmm. so perhaps you were like oh you can't compare to that kid yes but that kid not not to you know just as an example has right. only that has only the look by you that maybe he never even spoke to you for three right. hours you know so tattooing is much more than that it's oh, very important yeah. that this doesn't get lost you know this contact with 
with the person because you will not remember the tattoos you made. You remember the people, right? Right. And I've said that all the time. I say I'd rather get a mediocre tattoo from a great person than or, you know, a decent tattoo from a great per from a great person than a great tattoo from a more uh, from a jerk, you know, and I have, I have it on me, you know, I got a tattoo and, you know, the, I'm not saying the guy was a jerk, but um, I have a tattoo that I got uh, that at the time, at one point, the person was considered maybe one of the best tattooers in the country or in the world. And um, I don't really know him. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, I'm not speaking about him, but the whole experience was very uncomfortable. And as a result, I covered the tattoo. You know, yes. I, I didn't, I, I didn't ever enjoy looking at it because uh, it marred any joy I had yeah. because it was a terrible experience. And I think some people don't realize that. And you know, you know, like I know, in 20 years, doesn't really matter how. I mean, of course, a great tattoo is going to hold up over 20 years, but some of all the finesse that went into it and while doing it is going to you're not going to see it in 20 30 years anyway you know it's yeah, going yeah. all you know so yeah i think what you want is the tattoo that you look after 20 years and you still put a smile on your face yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah because of who did it and you know the experience and you know where you were at at, the, at that point in your life yeah i agree yeah. That's important to me. And let me ask you one last thing. Um, if you could somehow talk to yourself when you were, I don't know, 15, 16, 18, you know, you were about to start your real life, so to speak, and you could give yourself an advice with what you know now, what would you tell yourself? Run. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's hard because if I had done anything differently, I wouldn't be here today, you know, and I, I love my life is, you know, I'm so happy. I have a wonderful partner. I have, you know, fabulous children. I have great relationship with them and um, my grandchildren, they would not be here. Um, you know, I always think I love those movies. I love books, everything uh, that is like an alternate life or what if you did this instead of that or I love those, but I, you know, time travel. But I think if I did anything differently, um, you know what I would say? I would like, if I could, knowing what I know now, it would be somehow to value myself more, just to realize that I, that I was valuable and not to... Um, not to discount myself. I mean, I think it's good to be humble, but also maybe some self-preservation. Yeah, that would be that'd be good. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, knowledge of value. Yeah. Beautiful, Deb. Thank you very much for opening like that. You know, it's very yeah. Because again, like tattooing is much more than tattooing. And this is what I'm trying to do with this podcast. It's not just you know collect stories of you know drunk nights, but you know, portrait a person, especially when they have such a rich life, which for the good or the bad, that's what makes you rich, you know, so. 
I appreciate it and thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you do. I don't know where you get the time, but <laughs> for all your, you know, oh, there's a seminar and now you're doing a podcast and now you're doing a fundraiser. Uh, but no, thank you so much. And thank you, yeah, for the fundraisers that you do. I'd like to address that for one second. Yeah, thank you for uh, inviting me, but thank you for raising all that money for everybody. And, um, you know, recently um, we had, there was a GoFundMe for me and people just in the tattoo community, I get tattooers, customers, uh, whoever, just people were so generous and so wonderful to me. And um, Mother Teresa, if you can't feed a hundred people, at least feed one. That's what I think. You know, I, if I could help somebody, you know, I, I try, you know, no matter, you know, whatever it is financially and, and otherwise. So I really appreciate you doing that. And thank you. No, thank you. It's possible because of all of you guys, you know, and it's beautiful, like, to see because I'm just a channel. All I do is organize, you know, and then you guys, it's a collective, right? But it's beautiful how, like, to see, like, you, it happened with your fundraising, to see the the potential for good that is in within people. You know, when you just have a cause and, and a direction, you see that people resonate. And that's, and that's, I think, beyond the individual, you know, effort, like, as a collective, the, the people, like you said, the customers, you know, the artists, the public, yeah. it's, that I think what give, what gives me hope, you know, it's like, oh, you see, there is hope, you know, people have that potential for good. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And because sometimes it's more than one person can bear, you know, like, uh, let's say some something happens to, you know, somebody's family or their home or, you know, their shop. Uh, yeah, maybe they could sell their house, you know, to uh, fix their shop or or what have you. But, you know, but then if everybody else could help, then they don't have to bear uh, the brunt. I'm going to end on this, but I was a waitress when I was a girl. I left school when I was like 12 or 13. And um, but I had to work. My father said, if you're not going to go to school, you have to work. So I started working when I was 13, 14 years old and I was a waitress and it was in a big steakhouse in New York City and there was about 100 waitresses and if somebody left without paying you know your table you were as a waitress you were responsible for it so what happened was um, uh, if that happened to somebody all of the other waitresses put in you know a dollar or two dollars or what have you so that one waitress wouldn't have to pay, you know, $100 for the full tab, that helped. And then anytime that ever happened, then it helped everybody collectively. But it also, the one waitress who said, oh, no, I'm not putting money in, you know, people, they didn't want to, you know, do that to her. But but everybody helped everybody, you know, everybody helped. So I really like that. So I always remember that. So, but thank you so much, Steph. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.